Well, um, I, love, I love the Bible partly because it is just a really honest book. And of course it is. It's from God. It's God's word. He's going to tell us the truth. So I know that's a little bit of an obvious statement maybe. But um, what I mean by that is that the Bible really gives us a glimpse into the reality of the world, um, the reality of human beings, the, the fact that uh, it records for us stories about people who are, though they lived long before us, are much like us. And, um, and, and we can resonate with people who are uh, struggling with some of the same things we struggle with. And this text, uh, this passage, really shows us some, some profoundly important things about not just the characters in the story from 2,000 years ago, but our own hearts and our own lives. And uh, one of the things that I've, I've seen uh, often in my life, and I'm sure you've seen um, in your life, is that most of the things that happen to us are out of our control, right? We, we actually don't have a lot of power as human beings to change very many things. Um, and, and it feels like that because it is out of our control in a lot of ways, right? There's, there's, we have so many limitations in our lives. Uh, I can't even begin to give you the whole list of the things that we're limited in, but let me give you a few things for us that we all know are true. Uh, we cannot control uh, the weather. That's, that's one thing. We all know we can't do that, right? We can barely predict the weather, uh, much less control it. Uh, the natural world is under someone else's control. It's under God's control, not ours. We, we can't control even our own health to a large degree. Now, of course, we can eat, eat and exercise uh, appropriately, but we all know people who seem to live very unhealthy lives or lifestyles who live long into their old age and those who seem to be young and healthy pass away, right? We all, we all know people like that, where we kind of go, what's up with this? This seems weird. Um, because we're ultimately not in control of those things. Um, we, we aren't in control of other people's reactions or actions. Uh, we all know that almost every conflict we have with another person is because we're not in control of their, their responses um, or are even in many cases our own as we emotionally respond to things. Sometimes we're out of our own control in those moments. We can't control our government outside of voting a couple times a year. Um, and we all get frustrated by that, right, at, at different times. Um, so the point is, is that we are weak and dependent people, whether we like that or not. It's, it's the reality. And what this uh, passage in the Bible teaches us is that while human beings have tons of limitations, we are not ultimately in a world that is out of control. God is in control. God is ruling and reigning. God is doing the things he sees fit to do. And that we need. We need to know that. Because if we don't have a God in, in heaven controlling the world, then we have no hope. We, really, we will just be living in, in absolute chaos. Um, and confusion all the time. And, and this passage really brings us to a, a doctrine, a theological teaching of God's character that doesn't get as much attention, I think, as it should. And, and this passage brings us to something called the omnipotence of God. The omnipotence of God. That's a fancy word 
Omnipotence is a word you're never going to use in a normal conversation. (laughs) And you'll probably never uh, hear it outside of a church. Um, But omnipotence is an old word for for one who has total, complete power. Um, That is a word that only applies to God. Only God is omnipotent. There is no human being who has this attribute or characteristic within him. There, There is no dictator in the world who is omnipotent. There is no abusive spouse or cruel boss or or rude person in your life who is truly omnipotent. They they may have some degrees of power and control, yes, but they are not truly in control of all things, regardless of how it appears. And and in our passage today, we're actually going to see a whole bunch of helpless, limited people being helped by the power of God and his omnipotent hand. And I think we need the truth of this because uh, if we don't know God as the one who is truly powerful, truly in control, and truly ruling and reigning in the world, uh, we, will, we will go very dark very quickly. So this passage, so let's turn our attention to it. Um, chapter 12 of Acts gets us back to the church in Jerusalem. So if you've been tracking with us, and I know some of you haven't been following this series very long, that's okay. Most of Acts, the beginning of it, focused on the church in Jerusalem. And then it started to spread out beyond Jerusalem. And, and Luke, as he writes this, this history of the early church, has for the last several chapters been focusing our attention away from Jerusalem onto the Gentiles or the non-Jewish population around the region. And, and so most of our attention has been focused on the Apostle Paul being saved and now, uh, and, and really in the last couple of weeks, what God has been doing to draw Gentiles to salvation. But chapter 12 takes us back to Jerusalem and it's showing us what's going on in that particular local church. And this is really going to be significant because from here on out, Jerusalem is going to not take the center stage of the book of Acts. From chapter 13 onward, it's going to be all about Paul and his journeys to to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So this is really the last major look at the church in Jerusalem outside of a few short, uh, you know, visits here and there throughout the rest of the book. But this is the last real glimpse into what's going on in Jerusalem. And uh, what we're going to see in this is that it is extremely chaotic in Jerusalem at this point in time. So let's read verse 1 to 4, and we'll get a sense of what's happening. It says, At about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So this gives us a glimpse into the chaos that's happening in the church in Jerusalem among the Christians. Uh, we, We first encounter this guy named Herod the king. Now, Herod, uh, if, you've, if you're familiar with the, the New Testament story, you know Herod is, shows up more than once. But there's actually different Herods, which is confusing. So this Herod's grandfather 
is the Herod that was there when Jesus was born and that the wise men spoke to and then ended up going on to, to kill the babies in Bethlehem. This Herod comes from a long line of crazy people. Okay, let's put it that way. Um, then that Herod, that grandfather of this Herod, kills this Herod's dad, so he's out of the picture. And this Herod's uncle then becomes the Herod that Jesus goes to just before he's crucified. If you remember, Jesus is sent to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate realizes he's a Galilean, so he's like, oh, okay, cool, I'll kick him over to Herod. Let Herod decide whether we kill Jesus. And Herod is like, not my problem, and kicks him back to Pontius Pilate. Um, that Herod is this Herod's uncle. So now that guy dies at some point, and now this Herod is in charge. So that's not confusing at all. Um, but this Herod is a puppet king. That's what we need to recognize is he's called the king, but he's really a puppet king. He's been appointed by the Roman emperor, Caligula in this case. Um, and he actually, because this Herod comes from a long line of wealthy, powerful, influential people, this Herod was educated in Rome uh, as a, as a schoolboy, went to Rome and as that was actually classmates with the, the people who became emperors, Caligula and later Claudius uh, were his classmates. And so he became friends with the imperial family uh, and he basically wormed his way into this position and is there at the appointment of the Roman emperor to basically keep, keep watch over what's going on in Israel, particularly in Galilee. So this Herod now is, is violently attacking the church. Notice what Luke tells us. In verse 2, it says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now that's like a very quick statement that we can just blow past, but that is a really big deal. If we were, if we were to live at this time, that would have completely shaken us because James, this James, is one of the 12 apostles. And he's the first of the 12 apostles to be killed. Now, we've had other Christians persecuted. The other apostles had been persecuted. They'd been arrested. They'd been beaten. But none of them had been killed up to this point. And then we had Stephen, who was one of the deacons of the church, who was killed for his faith. But none of the apostles up to this point had been murdered. And now we have James. John, this is one of the sons of Zebedee, right? This, this James and John, which were a package deal in the Gospels, followed Jesus. One of the 12 apostles, he's killed with the sword, which means he was probably beheaded, um, much the same way that this Herod's uncle killed John the Baptist. So here, that's, that's chaos. Not only now does, is John, or James rather, killed, but now also Peter is arrested, so Peter is the leader of the church. He, if, there's the 12 apostles, they all play a role, but Peter is what we would call in our language the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's the guy who's up front doing most of the talking. He's the guy leading the charge. Uh, Peter is arrested by Herod. He's put in prison. He is under lock and guard. He's held in prison because, only because the, the feast of Passover is happening and they can't legally kill someone during Passover. So basically they're holding Peter in prison until Passover finishes, that feast finishes, and then they're going to bring him out and kill him too. That's the plan. And so here's just absolute chaos happening in the church. If we were there, we would all be losing our minds, right? It, it would just be a terrifying thing to see happen. So... 
That's the, that's the scene, that's the stage of the chaos in which the early church was living in. Now, how do we make sense of that? Let's just think about this for a minute because most of us perceive of Christianity and the, and the Christian life as, well, I'm following Jesus with kind of the, the, you know, the long-term plan that he's going to make my life better. But this doesn't seem like a life that's better, right? Peter's in prison. He's going to be, he, he's, the plan is for them to murder him. They've killed James, another one of the apostles. They're persecuting people left and right. How is Jesus helping the church in Jerusalem to have a better life? Well, I think the answer to that is that that's a misunderstanding of the Christian life. The promise of the gospel is not that we have a comfortable life here on this side of glory, but that we will have an eternal life through Jesus. And that that's actually going to be better than anything that happens to us here that everything that happens to us here will ultimately be, be um, just put underneath the, the reality of the glory of God. There's a long view in Christianity. We need to remember that. We need to remember the long view because if we don't, we're going to give up very quickly because if, if all of our hopes hang on, I follow Jesus because of what he can give me here and now, well, then we're going to be disillusioned real quick. These people aren't disillusioned. They have, a, they have an understanding of what is happening to them, which is good. So that sets the stage. Peter's in prison. He's awaiting his execution. He's under lock and guard. And now let's look at verse 5. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So, so so here's what we're seeing. The, the chaos of the world is, uh, is un, ununderstandable in many ways to the church. And they are completely helpless to do anything for Peter uh, physically. They can't get him out of prison. They, they, don't have the, they don't have arms. They don't have the strength of, of an army. They can't overtake a fortress, which is where he's being housed. They, they're helpless in many ways, but they do, the church, the, the fellow Christians in Jerusalem do what they can do, which is to pray. They pray earnestly. They do the only thing that is actually in their power to do, and that is to ask God for help, which by our definition of power isn't much of anything, right? Like we don't define power as being weak and helpless uh, but that's really where biblical strength lies. It's in being weak and recognizing our limitations and going to the one who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful, who actually does have control over what's happening. And so we're told that they are earnestly praying for Peter, that they're, they're praying for him. That means they're desperately, sincerely praying that God would rescue Peter out of Herod's wickedness. I'm sure you've seen moments in your life, as I've seen in my life, where there, there is so much going on that you have nothing to do but pray and beg Jesus for help. That's a scary place to be. But it, it's a good thing for us to be there because it breaks down this, this faux notion of self-sufficiency we can convince ourselves that we're strong. We can convince ourselves that we can handle things. But there are, there are points in life where that's just not true. And then we have nothing to do but go to God and pray. So the church does this. 
they pray. Now, let's keep reading here because we're going to read, the, the next section is a long one. It's 16 through, uh, 6 through 17 rather. Um, but we're just going to read a little bit and stop and talk as we work through these, these uh, 10 or 11 verses. So it says now, verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out, that is bring Peter out of prison to kill him, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Let's stop there for a second because that's wild to me. Um, Peter's asleep in prison, chained between two soldiers. He's got one hand tied to one guy, one hand tied to the other guy. They've got guards outside the doors. And what is Peter doing? The church is freaking out, praying all that they can. And Peter's just fast asleep. (laughs) He's asleep. And this tells us something. This is fascinating because what this is showing us is a person who really does trust in the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God. You can only sleep through crisis if you believe God's in control. And that's what Peter's doing. If this was most of us, if this was probably any of us, we would be wide awake because Peter's not an idiot. He knows what day it is. He knows it's the end of Passover. He knows he's in prison and he's going to be dragged out. But he's not concerned about it. He's not wide awake. He's not freaking out. He's not losing his mind. He's asleep. And I think this indicates where Peter's heart is. If we are to really believe that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's omnipotent, then we can lay our heads down and sleep. I think that's really interesting because the, when, we, when we go through seasons of anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, whatever it is, whatever, whatever responses we may have to the world or to the situations in our lives that feel out of control, almost always the first thing that we lose is our sleep. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? We stay up fretting. We stay up running scenarios in our minds. We, we stay up um, just trying to figure out how to do something that we have no power to do. I've faced this in my life. I've had sleepless nights. I've had nights where I'm like, I can't, my mind's just racing. Typically it happens when I'm in a conflict with a person that I don't know how to fix or don't know how to solve or a situation that's beyond my control and I find myself tossing and turning and then getting up and just thinking and, you know, you've probably all been there too at some point in your life. And, and typically what I've done in those moments, they're not regular, they're not normal uh, moments, but the occasions where I struggle with this, it's I'll get up, I'll get out of my room, I'll go sit in my chair in the living room and I'll begin to pray or begin to, to try to bring my mind back to a proper place And the place that the Lord tends to bring my mind, it seems to happen every time, is there's a verse in Psalm 127, verse 2. And it says there, at the end of verse 2, it says that the Lord gives his beloved sleep. And Psalm 127, 2 is a fascinating thing because it, it actually draws out the reality of the world in which we live. And I I, I just have that, he gives his beloved sleep. 
That runs through my mind. But if you read the first verse just before that, it says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Those verses get to the heart of our sleeplessness. Anxious toil, fear, worry, the, the, these things that are actually outside of our control, like whether or not the Lord builds the house or whether the Lord watches over the city. These are things that we don't actually have control over because unless he builds it, we're building in vain. Unless he's watching, we're watching in vain. And yet we stay up late and we get up early and we eat the bread of anxious toil. But what the Bible calls us to is to sleep, knowing that the Lord is in control and that he loves us. And I think that that has been so helpful for me as I've wrestled in, in, over certain nights in my life and go, okay, God, you say you give to those you love sleep. I know you love me. You've sent your son to die for me. That's not the question. So why am I awake? Why am I fearful? Why am I worried? It's because I'm not trusting you to love me and lead me. And would you help me to do that? And sometimes that works and I can go back to sleep. And sometimes it doesn't, right? Because I'm a person. But we're all, we're, we, could, we all need to, to let our, allow our theology of God lead us to how we live. And that's exactly what we're seeing Peter do. As he sleeps between these two soldiers, he is trusting the Lord. You're not going to sleep unless you're trusting the Lord in that moment. And so there he is. Let's look at uh, verse 7 through 12 now. And it says this, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. And woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know, Peter did not know, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was dreaming. When he had passed... When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along another street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Well, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And he, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many, of, where many were gathered together and were praying. So this whole time, Peter is basically a passive participant. He's not doing anything. He's, he still thinks he's dreaming through the whole thing. And this angel shows up, releases him, breaks his chains, gets him out the door, sneaks him out. Peter's just doing what he's told because he thinks it's a dream. And so who's not going to do what they're told in a dream, right? We're just, he's just like, whatever, I'm just sleeping here. I'm dreaming about being released. Cool. And then the angel gets him all the way out of prison into the city and he finally wakes up and goes, oh, that was real. Okay, cool. 
awesome. Let's get out of here. And so then he runs to the house of um, Mary, the mother of John, John Mark. We're going to meet John Mark a little later on in this book. Um, His mom's house is where the church is praying for him. So Peter runs there. So God does something for Peter that only God could do. He rescues him. He delivers him out of Herod's power, Herod's threats, and gets him out. Now, that's obviously a miracle, right? That's not always going to happen. That happened for Peter. It's not always going to happen for all of us. Um, James didn't get anyone to rescue him because it wasn't the Lord's plan to do that. Why? I don't know. But that's, that's God's deal, not ours. But God decides to rescue Peter and gets him out so Peter is uh, making his way to the house where the church is. Now let's pick it up in verse 13 through 17. It says, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, so he's at the house, he's outside the house, there's like a courtyard with a gate. He's at the gate, he's knocking. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I love that. That's just hilarious to me because this is probably a nine or 10-year-old girl uh, just helping out. She goes to the front door. She hears Peter say, hey, it's Peter. I'm, I'm here. Can you let me in? And she doesn't let him in because she gets too excited to let him in. So then she runs back into the house and leaves Peter out there. And so then she goes to the church and tells them what's going on. And uh, listen to this very faithful, faith-filled group of people. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. Now, this is the same group of people who are earnestly praying for God to bring Peter out of prison. This girl comes in and says, Peter's out of prison, he's outside. And they say, you're crazy. We're like this, aren't we? (laughs) You're out of your mind. There's no way God did that. But she kept insisting that it was so. So they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, what are they getting at there? Well, they're saying, well, if Peter's out there, it's his ghost. He's dead. His ghost is talking to you. This is weird to me, actually. Just like the superstition, the fear. These are the same people who are supposedly trusting the Lord to deliver Peter because they're praying for him to do that, and they don't even believe God's doing it. This is wild. All right, so it's his angel, it's his ghost. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. (laughs) He's just like, please let me in. Somebody let me in. And when they opened the door, they they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now that James is not the James who was killed. It's James, Jesus's brother James, who goes on to write the book of James and uh, it becomes a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. So he says, you got to tell this to James and to the other brothers. Probably the other apostles is who he's talking about. And then they departed and went, and then he departed rather and went to another place. Okay, so, so this is interesting. Let's just think about what's happening here. We've already kind of mentioned it, but the church that's gathered to pray for Peter clearly doesn't even believe that God is going to do what they're asking him to do. 
which is fascinating and human, normal, actually, in some ways. Um, so Peter gets there. They doubt it. They, they refuse to believe the little girl. They're just like, nope, not, not happening. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, finally, he gets in. But what is this? This teaches us something about prayer that I think is really crucial for us to see. A lot of times we see prayer as um, being according to the measure of our faith. Is that what this text is teaching us? These people, if they actually had faith that God would answer their prayer, like truly believed it, Rhoda would show up and they'd be like, sweet, let him in. Why are you in here? Why didn't you let him in? Because they would have obviously been like, yeah, God clearly is going to bring Peter to us. We were asking him to. The fact that they respond the way they did shows that somewhere in them is this lack of trust that God's going to do what they're asking him to do. Now, they're still doing the right thing. They're praying. But there's clearly some disconnect here. And I think we need to recognize that prayer is not an issue of us twisting God's arm to get him to do what we want because we have enough faith and he then has to do it. Prayer is actually, in this situation especially, is showing us that prayer is more about the posture that we put ourselves in. Recognizing God is in control, we are not. And so when we pray, we ask God for help. Even if there's a twinge in our hearts that goes, he's not going to do this. But I'm going to be humble enough to ask him to anyways. I'm not ripping on these people. I think that what they're doing is right, even though Luke shows us truly what's under the hood in this. This is, this is a group of people who were doing what they could do, asking God for help, and yet they were still humans and still questioned and still doubted, and God still answered their prayer. He got Peter out. This this answer to prayer has nothing to do with this group of Christians being so faithful to the Lord that he just has to do what they want. It has everything to do with the fact that God chose to do this and they were praying in alignment with that through humility. So prayer is about putting ourselves in the position of saying, God, I need you. And then trusting him with the results. Whatever he wants to do. So we see this in the life of Jesus. When Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he's praying. He's in such a state of anxiety. He's literally bleeding blood from his face, from his pores. He's, he's sweating these drops of blood, which is a medical condition that is just under the most intense stress this can happen to people. Jesus is in a state of absolute fear, anxiety, and worry, and he's asking God to remove the cross from him. But then he prays, not my will, but yours be done and he still faithfully goes to the cross. But he asks for God to take away the cross, and God the Father doesn't take away the cross. That's a lesson for us, that we may not get what we ask for, but prayer is about putting ourselves in a humble position before the Lord to say, God, do what you want to do. We're going to trust you in it. In this case, God does answer the prayer that the people are praying. God does deliver Herod, uh, excuse me, Peter from Herod, and so there, there's a good ending to this story. Now, we have a few more verses to look at. And basically where Luke is going to take us in this is kind of showing us the, the conclusion on Herod's end of this. We've seen Peter delivered, but what about this Herod guy? And how do we kind of close this 
close this up. And that's what Luke's going to do next. So verse 18 says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. So the soldiers all are up and going, what happened to this guy? And they're freaking out. And after Herod searched for Peter and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. So these soldiers get to die because they failed to keep the prisoner in prison. And then he, went, then he Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. So he kills all these soldiers and then he goes on vacation because he's Herod and that's what he does. Okay, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately the angel, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So that's going to be the bridge into what we look at next week. But let's look at the death of Herod here, because we're, we're told what happens to Herod. And this was not necessarily directly connected to the Peter story. It's just Luke's giving us some historical detail on what happens to Herod. And what's happening is, is that Herod goes down to his vacation home and these, these, this group from Tyre and Sidon, these other nations around Israel, uh, are in some sort of a fight with Herod. And Herod's angry at them. And so then they show up and they go, well, we got to make amends with Herod because we need Herod's food. Um, Herod would basically export corn and grain to these countries and he was mad at them so he's holding back and now the people of Tyre and Sidon are starving so they have to go make make good with Herod and they they persuade this guy named Blastus which is an awesome name um, who who works for Herod they probably bribe him is more like what persuaded means they get an audience with Herod and they make peace with him but the way that they make peace with him is that they completely and totally brown nose the guy. The guy puts on all his robes and he's looking all fancy and he gives this speech and their response is the voice of a God and not of a man. If you want to brown nose someone, that's the way to do it. Make them feel like they're a God. And they're just trying to butter this guy up. They don't believe Herod's anything big. They just want him to feel good about himself and about them so that he gives them food. So that's what's going on. But what we're told, and the part that kind of con, uh, ties into this, is that as that's happening, it says the angel of the Lord struck him down and he died. So what's interesting is that the same word, struck, is what happens to both Peter and Herod with two very different results. The angel strikes Peter on the side and wakes him up in prison and then gets him out. And then he strikes Herod down. Now, did, was there some natural cause for Herod's death? Probably, but that doesn't mean that God didn't do this as well. This isn't contradictory. God is the cause 
ultimately of Herod's demise. However, that happened. Uh, Josephus, an ancient historian from the Jewish people, says that Herod at this point grabs his stomach and freaks out and has massive stomach pain and dies. And so there's some, con- there's not, there's like extra biblical evidence here that this happened. Um, and whatever, it's like, yeah, God decided to take Herod out. What does that show us though? Why is this in the Bible? Like, because there's lots of things that we don't see happen ultimately from the Bible. The Bible's a selective story. It's a story that's giving us a point. So if it's here, there's a point. And I think what this story is here for is to show us the contrast between those who embrace God's omnipotent hand and those who trust in their own power. God takes Herod out because Herod doesn't give God the glory and lets the people believe or say that he's a God. At the end of the day, the heart of sin is the pride of believing we are more important than we are. And now for most of us, though we have that within us, by God's mercy, don't get taken out every time we have those thoughts. But, but this story's in there to show us that the, the, there are two lies we can believe and probably believe them both at the same time. And one is the lie of autonomy and the other is the lie of self-sufficiency. Autonomy says that we uh, can functionally be independent and do whatever we want to do with our lives. The lie of self-sufficiency says that we have everything in us to do that. And both of these are at the root of sin. Both of these are at the root of way back in the Garden of Eden. The promise to Adam and Eve was, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God and you will know good and evil. So, so this is the promise. You'll be like God. That's autonomy. You'll know all the things. That's self-sufficiency. And that's the heart of every sin. And Herod embodies that. And we do too in many ways. All of our sinful impulses are rooted in these two things. Paul Tripp, who's an author and pastor, writes this. I think it's helpful. He says, Not, No one but God is autonomous and self-sufficient. To think and act otherwise never results in good in your life. This means that the move of God's grace in your life is not from dependence to independence, but from independence to dependence. As you grow in grace, becoming more spiritually mature, your eyes are open to more of your weaknesses and you become more and more thankful for and reliant on the grace of God's power that's at work within you. Because you are more willingly and self-consciously dependent on God, you will quit taking credit for things you could never have done or produced on your own. In other words, we're not meant to steal the glory of God. We are meant to live under him, dependent on him, and faithful to him. Herod was killed because he touched the glory of God. You and I may not be struck dead for that by his mercy, but we will live shriveled lives, and and we will experience at one point or another what Johnny Cash says, sooner or later God will cut you down. This passage shows us that contrast, the contrast between Peter who can rest and sleep on the eve of his, of his death 
or seeming death because he knows God is in control and Herod on the other side who is self-deceived and dies for stealing the glory that belongs to God. Humility before Jesus leads us to say, I want to have what Peter had. Confident dependency on Jesus, even if that means a prison cell or chained between guards and almost certain death. And I'd take that rather than what Herod has, which is a palace and royal robes and wealth and power and influence and people constantly trying to impress me. Why? Because the first way leads to Christ, even though that's foolishness to the world. The other way leads to ruin, but it's what the world seeks. So to wrap all this up, when, when your world and mine feels out of control, we are not to lean on our own strength, but on God's. We are to go to him. We are to pray and ask for help. And then we're to go to sleep. And that's our response to a world out of control. Let God handle it. Ask him for help and rest. Okay, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you say to us, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, that promise today is what we want to rest our lives on. It's on you giving us rest, being the God of grace and power and wisdom and might and all the things that we lack and all the things that we need, you supply. Would you help us to go to you for those things? Would you help us to be confronted with our own areas of life where we feel autonomous and self-sufficient, would you help us to, to submit to you in those things and realign our hearts and minds to the grace of God that everything good comes from you and there is nothing that we can give you, there is nothing that we can repay you for because everything is from you. We pray for your help to get us there and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take some time to sing a few songs together.